Mike, take me back, please. Look, you're drunk, okay? And we're over, so why don't you just walk away now and save yourself the embarrassment? Oh, yeah? Yeah, well, you're the one, Amanda, who's gonna be embarrassed. Who's gonna want you now? Somebody. Teenagers look for love and sex at an epic post-graduation party. Listen as we talk about vitamin C remixes, what you call funeral home customers, and decent wordplay for a kindergartner. Then we find out if Can't Hardly Wait stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time. My name is Alan Noah, and you sitting right there across from me, your name is James Brief. That's right. I'm James Brief, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. I can't hardly wait to talk about today's movie. Can't hardly wait. Yeah, you did that in the tease last week. Then it was funny. Now it feels stale. Why? It was only like one week ago. Yeah, I guess I used the same thing over and over, but uh, I don't know. Whatever. CHW. That's what I'm going to call this movie now, okay? No. That's a bad acronym. Chwa. No. No. (laughs) It doesn't work. It doesn't work. This was a movie that I picked because I saw it was the 25th anniversary, and I was like, I don't think I've ever seen it. Maybe I have. There were definitely parts of it that looked familiar. Yeah, I'd seen this film. Um, I remember seeing it. Either in the theaters or shortly afterwards, because I remember that this came out the summer after we graduated high school. So I remember already kind of being a little nostalgic for like a high school party. No, uh, no. This movie came out in 1998. Yeah, exactly. We graduated in 1997 from high school. Yeah, so it's a year later. This is after freshman year in college. I understand. So I was kind of nostalgic. I was like, oh, like this isn't us anymore. Oh. Kind of thing. I was like, you know, this is uh, almost younger people than us. That was one of the first times I was thinking that. See, I think that's why I didn't go to see the movie in the theater. Maybe I saw it like on HBO or something over the years, bits and pieces. But I think having been like away at college for one year, it sounds stupid now, but like I think I thought, High school stuff? That's lame. I'm a college man now. I mean, (laughs) it sounds really, really stupid. But like, I think just being one year past it was enough for me to think that it was beneath me or behind me or something. Well, I do remember thinking that it was uh, definitely a different era. Like it wasn't like a senior in high school watching a, uh, a junior in high school movie. You remember that graduation song by Vitamin C? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's it called? It's called Graduation, parentheses, Friends Forever. Like that song came out in 1999. So I knew people that graduated high school in 1999. They love that song. And people who graduated high school in 2000 love that song in 2001. But for me, graduating in 97, by the time that song came out, I was like, this is stupid and lame because it's about high school. It's only two years later. It's not that big of a deal. But to me, it was just like, nope, that ship has sailed. 
I do remember thinking that about that vitamin C song. I do remember that uh, that's still when I was listening to Z100, which was the popular, uh, it still is, top 40 uh, radio station in New York City and all the surrounding state areas. But I remember back in the day they would have like, it's the Peekskill High School version. And as she's singing like, we will always be friends forever. And there's all people like, just saying, ah, I'm going to miss all my friends at Peekskill High School. These people must have just brilliantly went to, around to high schools and just filmed. And it was like a different remix every day on Z100, I remember. And it would be like from Long Island and then from Northern Jersey and then from Westchester and Rockland. It was a thing. I did not know that. I remember when I worked at Fuse, that song was playing on like one of the TVs in like the kitchen area or something. And I was like transfixed by it because I had completely forgot that that song existed. You know, this was probably 2012 or something. You know, it was like a one hit wonders kind of a show. And I just remember someone else walked in there and was like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I just didn't even remember that this song was a thing. And they were like, oh, yeah, I used to love this song, probably because they were two or more years younger than me. But, you know, because this is about like a high school party, did you go to a lot of parties when you were a a high school kid? You know, me and my friends, we didn't really get invited to a lot of high school parties like freshman through junior year. Okay, But then that all changed senior year. We were kind of a group that... um, I guess no one really hated, you know, in a weird way. <laughs> like, you know, so many people had been together, like, since kindergarten or, you know, junior high and everything. And there's so much drama. I went to a different school than everyone else uh, until ninth grade. So I didn't really have much baggage from the past with them. And by 12th grade, sometimes we would be invited. I remember that I was always invited to parties and I was driving whenever it was a crazy drinking party and like there was so much alcohol and beer and like wine coolers and uh, Bartles and James. Right. Or whatever it was back then, uh, you know, uh, the Mike's Hard Lemonade or whatever. Zima. Sure. But um, the times that I wasn't uh, the driver, like it was one of those parties where like we can't get any beer. No one was able to get anything. Oh, lame. Lame. However, during uh, sometime in the winter, there was a take-home midterm in our math class. What? And our teacher was like, yeah, you guys can work together. I don't really care. My parents weren't home, so we went to my place. And, like, you know, the smartest kid in the class, he basically was like, you know, let's let us let him lead the questions. And, and then, you know, we were able to knock out the test in an hour, hour and a half. And... You know, then we're a bunch of 17-year-olds in a house, and then someone's like, I think I could get some beer, and one thing leads to another, and then there was a party at my place. Whoa. Yeah, my mom doesn't listen to the podcast unless she's on it, so she listened a couple weeks ago. Okay. uh, She's not listening to the Can't Hardly Wait Teen Party episode. Well, my mom does listen to this podcast, and she has your mom's email address from when we were coordinating that episode, so... She might just send a note and get you in trouble. That's true. Although they don't live in that house anymore. Doesn't matter. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, there was a party. Uh, there were a couple of them. And, whoa, uh, yeah, whoa, whoa. I, I mean, a couple. A, four is a couple, right? No, that is a couple of couples. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it's a couple of couples. It's a couple squared mm-hmm. parties. Mm-hmm. But, Al, did you ever have any parties at your place? Not in high school. I lived in an apartment. There wasn't a lot of space. 
Um, my friend Aaron, who joined us for Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2, he had a New Year's Eve party. It was senior year, so I guess that was 1996 into 1997. I remember being nervous about that party just because we were nerds and we like we had our little circle of friends and we kind of figured that would be it. But actually, like other people came and hung out and it was a pretty good party. I mean, it was definitely the best party I'd ever been to at that point because it was probably the only like party party I'd ever been to. Uh, but it was fun. It was a really good time. It turns out in at least the 90s, if you brought alcohol, the teens showed up. This is true. We did have some alcohol. Sorry, Mr. and Mrs. Newman, if you're listening. We did. Actually, I think they knew. I think they like found a bottle or something afterwards, and he got in a little bit of trouble. Not that much. Uh, but we were responsible. I think myself and Aaron and a couple of others who were drinking, we all slept over. No one was driving. We were very responsible. Yeah, I mean, my parties were kind of the same thing. There was one guy I was friends with that worked in the supermarket, so he basically was able to get everyone the alcohol. And yeah, I mean, there was no damage, no swinging from the chandeliers. It was just a lot of people that found out, uh, you know, there was alcohol at this party. I didn't necessarily know everyone that was at the party, but, you know, in the end, everything was fine. But not in the case of the Can't Hardly Wait teens. Right, right. So as a refresher for anyone who doesn't remember the movie, it takes place almost entirely at a party on the night of high school graduation. Preston Myers is shy and has a crush on the popular and beautiful Amanda Beckett. Amanda is newly single, and Preston decides to finally confess his feelings to her. Meanwhile, Mike Dexter, the jock who dumped Amanda, is having second thoughts about that decision. Mike is also the target of a revenge plot by William Lichter, a nerd who is bullied by Mike. Denise Fleming is Preston's antisocial best friend, who doesn't want to have anything to do with the party. She gets trapped in a bathroom with Kenny Fisher, an arrogant wannabe who is desperate to have sex. In the end, Preston hooks up with Amanda, William becomes popular, albeit briefly, Mike is humiliated and arrested, and Denise and Kenny sleep together. So when this movie came out in 98, how did it do at the box office? I mean, this is the kind of film that uh, it's incredibly cheap to film. You said it. uh, The film takes place almost entirely in one set. And there's basically another scene at like a bus stop. So that didn't cost anything to really film. And a burger joint. Right. And and finally a train station. Like it's incredibly cheap to film this this movie. It has an amazing cast, like really famous people, but not when this film was made. I specifically remember this film being a Jennifer Love Hewitt film and definitely not anyone else that's in this film. And there's some cameos that you're like, oh, that's the Clarissa Explains It All girl, Melissa Joan Hart. Uh, But you didn't know who Seth Green was and uh, Jamie Presley, Selma Blair, Jason Segel's in this, Jenna Elfman, Brecken Meyer, Donald Faison is in this film. Mm -hmm. Charlie Cosmo. do you know where we saw him uh, originally? Yeah, he was in Hook. And he was in another film that we saw. Oh, what was the other one? A film that we thought did not stand the test of time. It was supposed to be the film of 1990, the summer of 1990. Oh, right. Uh, Dick Tracy. Yeah, he's the kid in Dick Tracy. Right. I just pulled up his IMDb. He was also in What About Bob? Oh, yeah. What About Bob? Right, 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 right. You didn't mention the star of the movie, technically. I mean, I know Jennifer Love Hewitt gets top billing, but Ethan Embry. 
Yeah, Ethan Embry. Uh, he was in uh, a number of films at the time. Um, now, a cameo in the film, I considered it a cameo because I was like, whoa, him, was Jerry O'Connell. He shows up for one small role uh, towards the end of the film. Yeah. And, uh, you know, despite the cast, uh, it uh, opened on June 12th, 1998, and it only opened at number four with $8 million. Um, it wound up being $25 million domestically. Two other movies uh, opened uh, that week. One uh, we may do someday. It stars a woman who recently died following a car crash. An age? Yeah. And what film would have debuted pretty well for her in 1998? Six Days, Seven Nights? That's correct. Yeah, I've never seen that film. We might do that one. Yeah, I never saw and, that. And uh, the other film that opened uh, that, that week, uh, here's a hint, Al. We're doing this film next week. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. We will talk about Dirty Work next week. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So the film wound up making, as I said, $25 million domestically. So, you know, it's not a lot of money, but this film is probably very cheap to make. Um, some sources say it's uh, $10 million was the budget. I remember reading a rumor that American Pie, the original American Pie, was sold to the studio. You ever heard this rumor or what it was sold as? No, what? The screenplay's original title, because, you know, American Pie, that sounds like something you just think of at the very end. Um, it was sold as teen sex comedy that can be done for under $10 million. Oh, maybe I have heard that. You don't really need a big budget or big names. So I guess this film probably did pretty decently for the producers. You know, it's not gangbusters, but uh, it bought them some extra cheese on their Whopper. I mean, isn't that like a couple cents? Oh, I think it's more than a couple. Uh, oh, okay. Um, I think they should have had higher aspirations, but if that's all they really wanted, I guess that's fine. Um, the soundtrack was a popular soundtrack, I believe. Yeah, one of uh, Smash Mouth's uh, most famous uh, songs from this movie, uh, Can't Get Enough of You Baby. How, how does that song go? Oh, you know. Okay, fine. I'll sing it. I can't get enough of you, baby. Blah, blah, blah. Also, there's another Smash Mouth song in the movie, not on the soundtrack album. Uh, there's two Third Eye Blind songs in here. It's very late 90s. But it's not pure late 90s. There are other tracks in the movie and on the album that are throwbacks. You, you have uh, It's Tricky by Run DMC. You have some Parliament, Guns N' Roses, Barry Manilow, because that's like a recurring theme in the movie. One of my favorite songs by Dire Straits, Romeo and Juliet, is in here. Not on the soundtrack album, but in the movie. So there is a lot of stuff that's not just late 90s. You're right. Um, I And while I love Paradise City, I think it's a great song, I wonder if maybe a more contemporary song that William Lichter was singing might work better there. But I, I mean, I think it works in this context. But I, I still think maybe like had he kind of tackled a quote-unquote modern 1998 cool uh, song, it might have been pretty cool. You know what that scene kind of made me think of? It made me think of... Another movie that starts with the word can't, Can't Buy Me Love, which we reviewed with my wife Courtney on Valentine's Day. And the quote nerd in that movie became really popular when he did one dance at, uh, you know, the, the school dance. Yeah, he became popular because he was also dating the popular girl. But like in this movie, this kid who is a nerd and bullied his entire high school career 
lip syncs to one Guns N' Roses song and then everybody loves him. That seems to be like the thing in movies, I guess. You're always one song away from popularity. Yes, but also I think that this kid, uh, Charlie Cosmo, uh, he is really well cast in this film because he looks like the kind of boy that he was the nerd. He's well dressed as the nerd. Um, it's not pocket protector. It's yeah, it's kind of what an unpopular kid that we went to high school might be wearing. He's also quote unquote cute, not teen heartthrob cute, but the way the girls kind of look at him like, you know, I've known this kid since elementary school and I've never looked at him, you know, second thought in the last five years, but he actually is kind of cute. He does get, you know, some drunken kisses. I, I kind of like the way his story goes, at least at the party. I get what you're saying. Um, I kind of want to circle back to his story uh, and his revenge plot on the bully a little bit later. But the way they sort of treat Amanda at the beginning of the movie is that it's a reveal. Like Preston is talking to his friend about his dream girl and he talks about her first day at that school. She was a transfer and it's like very deliberate that you don't see her face. You only see it's Jennifer Love Hewitt when she walks into the party, which is, you know, only a couple of minutes later. I thought that was a weird decision because I was like, wait, we know who this is, right? Like, why are they being so coy about not showing her face then? I get it that they were going for the reveal. I just felt like, so what? It's not that big of a deal when we see her walking into the party. Jennifer Love Hewitt's all over the posters. You know, like, what's the secret here? Right. I mean, forget if you didn't see the posters. I mean, if you saw it today, it's just not it's not a mystery. I mean, right. it's not just something that it's worth finding the mystery unless we're not going to find it out till act three. Like, you know, we find it out, you know, act one, scene two instead right. of scene one. I agree with you there. Um, and this is definitely like on the cusp of the Internet, but not yet, because there's a lot of things in this film. Had there been the Internet, things would have been a lot easier on these characters. I think there's only one reference to the Internet, and that's when William says that he downloaded a drinking guide that tells him how much he can drink. And he downloaded it and printed it and laminated it. So I, when I saw this, I totally had to think of, with my adolescent patients, I kind of have a little, yeah, you have a little shtick, you talk with them about drugs and alcohol and this kind of stuff. When I talk about alcohol, I say, look, uh, if you do have any alcohol, you know, the most important thing is you do not go into a car, you do not drive, you don't go with your friend that's driving. And even your smart friend, I tell them, your smart friend probably has some kind of app that says, oh, I, I looked at uh, the internet, it says uh, we can drive at midnight based on my weight and how many beers I drank. Like, that's very smart that he tried to do that. Do not drive with anyone that drove that whole night. I kind of think I might have been thinking of the William Lichter, uh, you know, thing he downloaded. I'm not sure if I, that was subliminally in my mind, but I do say, uh, you know, some app that some kid is having. I Maybe I used to say some web page, but uh, it is something that I feel like a smart kid would like naively think that you can like outsmart alcohol. And I also think it's kind of funny that he fails. Right, right. But getting back to Amanda and Preston, he is infatuated with her and he's going to approach her and he's just about to. And then he doesn't for a myriad of reasons. 
when he finally does approach her and say, you know, I've been in love with you for years, blah, blah, blah. He confesses all of his feelings. She has read the letter, but she doesn't know who Preston is because even though she's been in class with him many times, she never clocked who he is, his name, his face, anything like that. And she rejects him. And everything that she says is correct. She's like, you're infatuated with me. You're just a creepy guy. I don't know you. Why would I have anything to do with you? Why would I go out with you? Do you know why she says that, particularly to him, though? Yeah, because everyone's hitting on her after she and Mike have this big fight. So she's single, although she was single at the beginning and everyone knew that. Now she's like single-er or something. So every guy's like hitting on her. Well, not just hitting on her. Every guy was specifically like, hey, Amanda, remember that time we were in gym class? I totally had a boner and like blah, blah, blah. So like three guys said, uh, remember when? And then poor Preston, he's like, remember when we were in class and I've had a thing for you? And, and if we could just go somewhere, he really just wants to talk to her. But of course, you know, everyone else is like, hey, you want to go somewhere with me? And that's why. In particular, it was just bad luck on poor Preston's part. Yes, you're you're correct about all of that. I still maintain, though, that everything she says to him in that moment is right. We've seen this in other movies where, you know, the romantic lead does a grand romantic gesture that works because it's a movie. But if you think about it for half a second, you're like, holy shit, if anyone did that in real life, that would be creepy as fuck. So when she, you know, rejects him, it's fair but then at the end of the movie they end up together and i was just like wait what why i mean the problem i have with this is that i'm not saying that they're not good together the nerd getting with the popular girl i think that's fine I just think that this film happens to show a couple really good progressions of relationships. There's the uh, Kenny and Denise love story that it's definitely an evolution from hostile to slowly going. And then, you know, at least it's a believable progression. Um, arguably, William Lichter and uh, Mike Dexter, they actually have a, a very nice evolution, I think. And, and actually, I, I kind of like uh, where it goes at the end with them. But um, why? Why does uh, Preston love Amanda? Because she's beautiful. No no question there. But sure. um, I don't think they've ever talked. And she even said it herself. She was just like, she was head cheerleader. She was the quarterback's girlfriend. I mean, don't get me wrong. I had infatuating crushes on girls like everyone else did. Sure. And I didn't necessarily talk to them, so I don't really know. So I'm wondering if it's just that, and maybe they got lucky that they seem to be soulmates. Well, I think you hit it on the head. It's an infatuation, which is fine and normal and whatever, but for them to pair up at the end of the movie, like, yeah, 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 I get it. It's a movie, you know, the guy gets the girl. That's how these things work. But there's absolutely no basis for them to have a relationship. And there could be. That could have happened. Why does Preston think that he would be great for Amanda? Because the universe has given him these signs. And all of these signs are bullshit. And people tell him that throughout the movie. But maybe Amanda believes in signs from the universe, right? Like Amanda is having like a crisis of identity where she says, if I'm not Mike's girlfriend, then who am I? Maybe Preston could have a crisis of identity where he says, if I'm not the guy in love with Amanda, who am I? Like there are things that the movie could do to show us, the audience, that these two characters, even though they don't realize it yet, they are in fact good together. 
The movie doesn't do that. And their relationship, even though it's just tacked on in the last scene, it's a relationship that Preston willed into existence. He wanted it to happen. And then she was like, oh, I guess I got to find this guy and we'll make out at the train station. And now we're in a relationship. Test of time thing. The text on screen says she writes him letters every day. Ha ha ha. It would be emails or texts or whatever. But like, it makes no sense, even in the logic of this movie. I'll say another thing that doesn't make sense is the movie ends with an epilogue where um, Preston uh, meets with Denise. He drives to see her and he's like, oh, what happened last night with you and Kenny, huh? Oh, you and Kenny, you sly girl, you. And then he drives off. It seems like he's driving to the train station. Yeah. But why would he be driving to a train station when he's going to be gone for 11 weeks? Well, that is a very good question. The obvious thing would be his father drops him off. Right. But if his father drops him off, there's no way for Amanda to go to their house and his father tells him where where to find him. Also, why wouldn't his dad take him to the train station? Sometimes in teen movies, the parents are just non-existent. But like, as a father, my kid's going to college. I'm taking them to college or at least the train station where I will wait with them as they get on the train to go to Boston or whatever school they're going to. Even the girl who's throwing the party at her house, it's graduation night. Her parents weren't at graduation? Or did they go to graduation in the afternoon and then split town that night? Like, that's weird. Two things about this. One, Preston's not going to college. He's going to a writing workshop at Dartmouth. But then isn't he going to college in the fall? Yes, but uh, I believe this is just kind of like one of these summer programs. Oh, okay. Uh, so he, this is just like he's going to sleepaway camp, but it's going to be with Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> um, Fine. Even still, his dad should be there. Yeah. The, the second thing is I absolutely believe that there are parents that would leave their kids, especially super-duper rich parents. They have somewhere better to be. They don't really give a shit. Aw, as a father, that makes me sad. Yeah, well, you're a certain type of father, and there's other kinds of parents out there. I mean, geez, man, you really went through some gymnastics there to not say I'm a good father, okay? (laughs) I mean, you know, there are people that, you're right, would think that I'm going to drive my kid to a train station, and there are parents that would be like, all right, you know, just uh, drive to the train station, leave your car there for 11 weeks. (laughs) I better stay home in case some random girl is asking questions about where you are. Right, exactly. It's not like the parents weren't home and he had to drive himself. We've established mom or dad was home. So probably to me, um, this is the the weakest of the uh, relationships. Because yeah. uh, let's go to uh, Seth Green's uh, Kenny Fisher and Lauren, Am- Lauren Ambrose, uh, Denise Fleming. Do you know Lauren Ambrose from anything else? I know that she was in Six Feet Under, and that's one of those shows that's like a HBO classic that I need to watch, and I'm totally going to watch. And I've been saying that for how many goddamn years have I been saying that, and I haven't watched it? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot of everyone has to watch it because it's cool. I'll say that the last five minutes of the last episode of Six Feet Under are among the best five minutes of television ever made. I've heard that. And I I won't say anything about it, but it's just a a great... I know what it's about, even though I've never seen it. Okay, but um, the show deals with something that never is dealt with in any other show. It's just, it's death. 
And every episode, because they run a funeral home, so it's kind of centers around the one customer. They have client. I don't know what you call them. Um, let's say client. That that sounds better. Sure. Um, guest, perhaps. I really like what they did with the character Denise. Uh, I think she's dressed really well. I think she's not over the top goth like you know that some movies might have done. I think she's yeah. wearing what's realistically what what would be worn. I remember in Six Feet Under, she's beautiful, and in this. This film, I'm not saying she's not beautiful, but I think they purposely like don't make her up like they do Jennifer Love Hewitt, who's beautiful in this film. Sure. And I think that serves the character well because she's a sweet girl, she's cute, and she's she's nice. But uh, you know, there's a nice little love story there because Kenny Fisher, played by young Seth Green, who pops up in all these films that you know before he's, I guess, his big break is probably uh, Austin Powers, right? I think that's probably fair. That's yeah. probably why he was like. Scott Evil, and then you find out his name, you know, Seth Green. People knew him from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but that was kind of a niche show. Buffy like, the Vampire Slayer show was in on a 98? I forget exactly when it started. All right, but um, he's one of these guys in the 90s. They, they were definitely these kids in my high school. They're wearing the baggy pants, and they're jackasses, these guys. Uh, did you have guys like this in your, in your high school? In my high school, yeah. Also... In our fraternity, there were like 50 of them, white kids who are obsessed with black culture, and they co-opt the the fashion and the look and the mannerisms. Yeah, and it's a combination of that combined with a little bit of today what you call the alpha male movement because Kenny, he shows his other two like-minded friends. He shows them his bag of love. And I totally believe a kid would actually do this because I know someone who did something like this. And Darren? Uh, was it our friend Darren? No, no, it wasn't. But uh, it was someone at Cornell. Uh, it was a kid that basically he... Uh, uh, he, he wasn't very lucky with girls and he went down to Cancun for spring break like junior year with a bunch of his friends and he was just convinced by popular culture that like it was going to be nothing but sex and he brought so many condoms and oh. you know he did not use any of them I know who you're talking about but I am going to edit this so that you say yes and that it is about Darren because I just think that'll be funnier <laughs> take that Darren Darren um, so Denise, uh, she is the antisocial, you can call her whatever the term of the moment is, goth, emo, you know, the backstories that these two used to be like best friends in elementary school and used to have little sleepovers that apparently changed in junior high when Kenny wants to be one of the cool kids. So we started wearing like fancier, like expensive clothes and whatever was trendy. And not only was he being trendy, but he was also completely, uh, actively mean to her because that's what a kid who thinks that's what the popular kids or even some, what some of the popular kids would do. They'd be mean to the unpopular kids. And eventually these two characters get locked in a bathroom uh, together. And I do love the fact that uh, Kenny's locked in there right after the fact that some girl was like, I'll basically have sex with you in the next room. Right. All he wants is to have sex and he has the opportunity, but because he's so worried about getting it right and, you know, using his condoms and his bag of tricks that he has, he sabotages himself because he's not ready to have that kind of sex, even though he thinks that he is. The backstory that they explain of like how he used to be a nice kid and then he kind of turned into an asshole. I get it. I still don't particularly like this character. I think he's just kind of a prick and annoying. 
And I think maybe that's to the credit of Seth Green that he kind of plays him well in that way. But I never found myself rooting for him. And I knew that I was supposed to. The only part of that story that I really liked was when Denise calls him out for the fact that he's a white kid, but hey, look in the mirror, because, you know, they're in the bathroom, there's a mirror, look in the mirror, dipshit, you're white, you are not black, you're pretending to be black, stop doing that. Even just what I said is more than what she says, I think it's only like one line. I appreciated that she called him out on that, but it still felt really hollow because he's like, yeah, whatever. And then they kind of drop it. I felt like they could have done more with that. And the way to improve this movie, this scene, this relationship is if you keep the character Denise exactly the same, keep their backstory exactly the same. You don't have to change much, but have it be a black actress. Then when she says, why are you pretending to be black? He might say something like, well, because I kind of always had a crush on you and I thought that's what I had to do to get you to like me. And she says, no. And, you know, it can be comedic. I understand this is a lighthearted teen comedy. This does not need to be a lecture about cultural appropriation. But the fact that he's pretending to be black and there's like black actors in this movie, but no black characters in this movie. You know, if you watch the credits, I don't know if you did, but like they're all guy in band, guy who remembers stuff, drummer or whatever. They don't have any names. Had you made the film today, there would be more diversity and inclusion. But I mean, this was some, you know, upper middle class white kids party. Um, You know, I disagree with you on Kenny. I really see the nice boy that's in there. And there's a couple times that the jerk is kind of fighting it out. But adolescents are jerks. They can be jerks. And, you know... In my opinion, Kenny Fisher, luckily, I think the screenwriters do not give him any sins that are like, you know, irredeemable. He's he's a jerk. I get what you're saying. The nice guy in there stuff, like I saw it. I saw what the movie was trying to do with him. It just didn't work for me. That's fair. I, I just found it like flat. The way that he kept like backsliding when he would do something kind of nice and say something genuine and then be like, yo, but whatever, you know, like, ugh. like it, it just it just grated on me. I wasn't rooting for him. All right. Um, let's talk about the last relationship of the film. That's uh, the nerdy William Lichter and the jock Mike Dexter, who uh, had recently broken up with Amanda. The backstory there is that Mike was always a bully to William. And you know, it's a little, I guess, problematic, the uh, revenge plot he was going to do. William and his uh, nerdy friends were going to dive on uh, Mike once he was lured out there with another one of his jock friends. And they were going to take their clothes off and put them in like sexual positions, I guess, the joke being gay, you know, in gay position, that's that's going to be humiliating. But it goes awry because, as we said, Mike brings in this, uh, you know, how much he could drink uh, card. And, of course, it doesn't go well. And very soon he's, you know, he's totally drunk. He's partying. And then Mike Dexter gets uh, humiliated by Amanda when he begs for her back. And um, after Amanda is like, you know, Mike, you're kind of a loser. And she walks away. Someone yells out to Mike and they yell out the F word, a derogatory term for gay. That line was meant at the time for laughs. I'm pretty sure it did get a lot of laughs in the theater. 
it's really a sign of the times. 1998, that was absolutely a thing that people still said. And they repeat it a couple times. And Mike's like, and someone in there called me gay. You know, he doesn't say gay. Right. But I mean... You know, they could have called him small dick or like they could have called him anything. And it would have been funny to like knock the, you know, the, the king of high school down. It's one of these unfortunate things that they picked a slur that, uh, you know, just is absolutely unacceptable today. So we've talked on the podcast and other episodes about this kind of thing and like the use of this exact word. And you, James, sometimes say things like, you know, it was just a common phrase at the time. And, you know, maybe the screenwriters didn't mean anything by it. And I think you say that because you are a kind-hearted individual who regularly sees the best in people and doesn't like to judge people. And you like to give people the benefit of the doubt. It's one of the best things about you. I think it's something about you I genuinely, truly admire. That's correct. I'm trying to take the benefit of the doubt. I don't think in Adventures in Babysitting, they were saying that the character of Thor was a homosexual character. I think he was trying to just insult the character. Wrong choice of words for today's times. Right. I understand that and I appreciate that about you specifically. Also, that nice thing about you kind of contrasts with me, the cynical fuck who sometimes just automatically sees the worst in people. I don't want to accuse screenwriters or directors or whatever of being racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, transphobic, whatever the case may be. We've talked about all of those things in other episodes along the way. Um, the screenwriters of this movie, they also directed this movie. It's a it's a pair if ever there was a time to accuse two people of being homophobic throughout all of the episodes we've done on this podcast, this might be the time because there is a lot, a lot of homophobic shit in this movie, none of which is necessary. Even for a lighthearted teen sex comedy, it just doesn't need to be there. The fact that Mike is humiliated in front of everyone, that scene is important for the plot. He's humiliated because Amanda rejects him and says, I don't need you anymore. The fact that some kid yells out the F word after that is completely unnecessary. The entire revenge, quote unquote, plot that William has to make people think that he's gay. Come on. He's a nerd. He's a smart kid. He could think of something better than that. And there's more to that. The the thing you were talking about, Kenny, and he has like the bag with all the condoms and stuff. He has a big candle in there and someone says, what is that, a dildo? What are you, a?" Uh? he says the F word. The girl who's throwing the party, you know, she doesn't want her house to get ruined. And of course, someone ruins a nice family portrait by doing what? By writing, I really like boys in like, you know, a, a, a quote bubble for the dad. When Mike and William kind of like reconcile kind of sort of at the party, the music that comes on is I'll make love to you by boys to men with the I don't even want to call it a joke because it's not even a fucking joke, but like the insinuation being, LOL, they're gay. It is a constant thing. Even in the epilogue, the text on screen about Mike, he lost his football scholarship and he gained all this weight and he got a job at a car wash, but he later lost that job at the car wash because there were some incriminating photos, which refers back to the prank that was pulled on him. So those incriminating photos show him cuddling with another guy so he loses his job at the car wash because he was gay? What the fuck? Like, what the actual fuck? It was just really fucking shitty. All of it. 
Well, um, there's one last little story I'll uh, say on this, and uh, that involves my little sister, Amanda, like uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt's character. She came home from kindergarten one day, and she was crying because this one boy was teasing her. Aww. He said he was teasing her name. And I said, you know, what did he say? This kid said, you're a man. Duh. And I'm like... All right, that, that's what a kindergarten boy would say. That's all right. decent wordplay for a kindergartner. Yeah, you know, I was like, all right, you know, it was one of those, like, ah, don't want, don't mind him. But uh, I, I did like when uh, Mike Dester was like, a man, duh. Right, it's witty wordplay for a kindergartner, not so much for a high school guy. Yeah. Um, did you notice, by the way, Jerry O'Connell, who plays the, like, over-the-hill uh, frat guy, did you notice his fraternity? I didn't, but I did see it in the trivia that he's in Delta, Iota, Kappa. Yeah, so he's a dick. Right, right, right. While we're just talking about like other random characters at the party, there's one guy there who just kind of like keeps going over to people and is like, hey, do you remember that one time like in third grade when like this one embarrassing thing happened? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and it goes to Preston, right, when he's next to Amanda. Right, right, right. right. And then he tells like the embarrassing story about like when he threw up on the bus or whatever. Yeah, and he gets together with Melissa Joan Hart at the end. Right, because she's into the yearbook and the memories and all that. That guy kind of reminded me of you. Because you like telling stories from a million years ago. And you're like, hey, you remember that time freshman year? And like me and our other friends are like, no, of course not. You're like, I do it. Here's 25 pictures of it. It just made me think of you. It's a me, James EO. Yeah, that made me laugh. All right, Al. So what do you think of 1998's Can't Hardly Wait? Does it stand the test of time? No. It really, really doesn't. Besides all of like the offensive gay jokes, one of uh, Kenny's friends like runs up to a group of black people and is like, hey, what's up? N-word. And then it's like record scratch and they chase him. <laughs> That's funny. Is it? No. Um, yes, I think it's funny when they finally get the comeuppance. Of course, you can't actually say this. Finally, there's consequences to them saying that. They probably were saying that word all over. And finally, they said in the wrong uh, company. I thought that was great that finally someone was going to beat them up for it. I, I guess. Um, the love story is stupid. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know if you left the credits on. There is a post-credit scene. Did you catch that? I did with the aliens or something. Yeah, the nerds get abducted by aliens. It's really, really stupid. The nerds make some X-Files jokes, which I guess you could say maybe does stand the test of time. No, there it was doesn't. The, well, there Only was that Hulu revival a couple years ago. Yeah, for people our age. Right. There's also just a lot of test of time stuff in this movie all of the barry manilow stuff i mean they really go into barry manilow and mandy and was mandy written about his dog it wasn't that's an urban legend he didn't even write the song but you know there's a lot of just really dated references there's a whole long riff about brad and gwyneth referring to brad pitt and gwyneth paltrow who were together and broke up i don't even think they say the word paltrow i think they're just talking brad and gwyneth and Every kid in 1998 knew exactly who those girls were talking about. But, you know, nowadays we know who Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow are. I don't know that 
everyone necessarily knows that they were a couple for however many years in the 90s. Yeah, but to be fair, in 25 years, there is not a more famous Brad or a more famous Gwyneth. So it still works. Fair, fair point. We didn't talk about Jenna Elfman's character at all. She is talking about how she used to love Scott Bayo, and she's like name dropping every show Scott Bayo was on. I don't think anyone really gives a shit about Scott Bayo anymore, especially now that he's a right wing fucking nut job. And also that whole scene, it takes place when Preston is trying to call the radio station so he can talk to Barry Manilow and he has to go to a payphone because it's 1998. He doesn't have a cell phone. He wants to ask Barry Manilow if the song Mandy is in fact about a dog or about a girl named Amanda. If he had a cell phone, he wouldn't need to go to a payphone. If he had a smartphone, he could just look it up. Like there, there's a lot of stuff in here that just doesn't make sense from a test of time perspective. But also, this is supposed to be a comedy. This is supposed to be a funny teen, not really sex romp. I mean, kind of, I guess. There's not a ton of sex in it, but I didn't think it was funny. I don't think I laughed once. It's got a good soundtrack. There's some great needle drops in here. But no, I do not think this movie stands the test of time at all. What do you think? I wasn't nearly as angry at this film as you are. Well, that is often the case. <laughs> that, that's true. Yeah, you know, th- there are there's the gay line and uh, William's plan, which which really only is a second, is does involve around you know getting Mike Dexter and some gay pictures. So so those are definitely you know don't stand up. I really like that Mike. Uh, he does the right thing for William at the end. And I kind of like that he sells him out at the end for a very quick little like laugh from his high school friends, who you can tell he probably doesn't speak to anymore. These don't seem like lifelong friend kind of people. Uh, they couldn't even keep a promise to each other like over one night. Like They don't seem lifelong friends. Right. I feel like William would have probably been super friends with Mike had Mike decided to be friends with him. Mm-hmm. And I think Mike super blew it that way. So I, I kind of, I always liked that. Um, Kenny and Denise's, uh, I like their story arc. Uh, I wish it didn't quite end on like a stupid little joke. Like it just says like after Kenny's like starting to talk stupid again, the subtitle just says like five minutes after this, they broke up again. And I'm like, all right, fine. He's an idiot. But then it says again. And 15 minutes after that, they found a bathroom and got back together again, uh-huh. which it, it is like a teenage thing, but it, it's not a bad line. It's just unfortunate. That's the last we know about them. Like, are they together anymore? Like we hear Preston is. It, it, it's not only just a teenage thing, it's also a them thing, because the other time they had sex was in a bathroom. So that's like where they go to have sex. Ah, uh, yes, and maybe they can only have sex in bathrooms. I guess. And it's one of those relationships. Weird. Um, I kind of tuned out and watched this film. I, I agree with your points. Um, it's not that funny, but at the same time, I, I think it's just kind of a relatively harmless minus those you know minus those outdated uh, uh gay references i think it's cute in other ways i do like william's storyline i like kenny and denise's storyline with problems i like ethan embry it's either there's something wrong with the preston character or ethan embry was miscast i'm not sure what it is but i think i should have been rooting for preston a little more maybe i needed to know why he was in love with her just instead of her being pretty uh, maybe that would have done it, but there was something missing with that. However, it's very simple movie. It's just uh, 
it's got some laughs. I did think it was funny. Uh, one part that I thought was very funny is the uh, is the band. That's Donald Faison and Brecken Meyer. They have this thing where they never get to play because right before they're about to play, the drummer goes, one, two, three, and then they get into a fight. Later in the film, they get back together and some guy's like, hey, let's have a reunion concert, just a few hits, you know, maybe a, one or two new songs. You know, that's kind of the cliche of like a reunion thing. And they go, all right, let's do it. And they hit the drumsticks. One, two, three. And then they're about to be back together and the police come in. I thought that was funny. I liked a lot of the secondary characters. There's like a German exchange student. It's cheap laughs, but it's the kind of thing that stupid kids would do. They talk Taught him how to say, like, I am sex machine. And Would you like to touch my penis? Right, right. And um, I disagree with you entirely on one thing. The fact that uh, this woman had, uh, this young lady who threw the uh, party, these guys today would absolutely write permanent marker on a family portrait and say, I like boys or something like that. I think that is something that people would absolutely still say today. I think boys are, you know, adolescents are stupid. It could be girls that are writing this too, but I think they would write this this uh, stupid stuff there. I agree with you that real human teens might do something like that. I think, though, that if it was in a movie that was being released in 2023 and they made either a gay joke like that or any of the other gay jokes that are in this movie. And I really hate myself for using the word jokes because these things aren't fucking funny. But if they did that, someone in the movie would call them out on it. And again, that could be comedic. Have it be a gay character who says, don't call him gay. We don't want him. And then everyone laughs. It doesn't have to be a big thing. You know, it doesn't have to be a big PC moment. It could still be funny. No one would say that in 1998 at this party. That The word homophobic didn't exist. But then it doesn't stand the test of time because it's 23 years later and we think differently. The joke absolutely does not stand the test of time. I, I agree totally. Like like I said, those parts do not. Right. Luckily, it's not the, the main part of the film. So for me, because I think it's, you know, a brainless teen comedy and I, I thought it was funny enough at parts. I do think it stands the test of time as just one of these, uh, you know, it's a teen party film. It's nothing spectacular. Uh, you know, I don't disagree with anything you say. It just didn't resonate with me as as uh, angrily as, as it did with you. But I understand what you said there. This is a film that's not, you know, fantastic. But it was clever enough at certain points that I liked it. I think because of Seth Green and, uh, and, and Lauren Ambrose. I think they elevate this film. I will say one nice thing about this movie. Great title. Great title. And it's not much of a compliment because it's really the title of a replacement song and the replacements are a great band. But I do think Can't Hardly Wait works as a title for a teen movie because teens, you know, horny, obnoxious, stupid, all the things you see in this movie, also impatient. They want what they want and they want it now. So I, I do think it's a good title for a teen movie. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to talk about another movie that came out the same week in 1998. You mentioned it earlier, Dirty Work, starring Norm MacDonald. Have you ever seen Dirty Work, James? No, I have not. I am excited for you to watch that movie. I'm very excited for me to rewatch that movie. I've seen it many, many times. I'm looking forward to that episode. In the meantime, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know your thoughts about this movie, about teen parties, the best teen party you ever went to, maybe some story you don't want your parents to find out about. It's cool. We won't tell them. We're not narcs. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.
He shows him his bag of love. And I totally believe a kid would actually do this because I know someone who did something like this. And Darren, uh, was it our friend Darren? Yeah. 